Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about the real estate market and the people connected by it. We seek to empower our listeners to make informed decisions while providing context for the real estate world around them. We hope that with every episode, you become a little more knowledgeable and a lot more curious. On today's episode of the Rennie Podcast, we'll be looking deeper into the question, how does design have the power to impact and transform lives? My name is Justine Liu, and joining us today to help us answer this question is Ada Bonini, owner and co-principal of BYU Design. BYU Design is one of Vancouver's leading interior design firms. With over 17 years of experience and a solid portfolio which includes features such as multi-unit residential projects that range from condos to townhomes and low-rise constructions to multi-tower high-rise buildings. In this episode, we will be exploring the BYU design philosophy and looking at how the use of data can improve and transform the design process. We will also discuss how we should be designing for tomorrow and what it really means to future-proof our environment. Hi, Ada. Welcome to the show. We are so happy to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Ada, to say that I'm really excited to speak with you today is a bit of an understatement. Interior design has been a long-standing interest of mine for as long as I can recall. I, I went through my last few years of middle school telling everyone I was going to be an interior designer. Of course, you know, it didn't happen that way, but getting the opportunity to speak with you today on this subject brings me back to all the love I had for this topic. So on that note, let's dive right in. Can you tell me more about yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here, first of all. I'm really glad to be here and to talk a bit more about what I do and what we do and how we do it. I'm one of the principals of BYU Design, which is also known as Bob's Your Uncle Design. I'm also what is known as an RID, and that's um, a registered interior designer with both our local regulatory association and the national. And so that just essentially means that I'm uh, one of the highest qualified interior designers in our field. And I've been working under the specialty of multi-unit residential design for about 22 years, primarily in the greater Vancouver area. Our expanding team of 20 people, they work collaboratively on a multitude of projects varying in all sizes, from boutique townhome developments to social housing. We also do large-scale multi-phase projects. In fact, some of our projects last about six years or sometimes even longer. Wow. So can you tell me, share a little story behind the, the BYU name? Sure. Uh, it's kind of a funny story in a way because it sometimes separates our clients who we know have a little bit more of a sense of humor than the ones that are strictly business. Uh, so BYU design is a very formal, strict approach to it. But Bob's Your Uncle Design is actually our legal name. And what it is is a British catchphrase. And it means your success is guaranteed or it's an implied sure thing. And um, it's kind of a playful approach. And I think that our corporate culture really believes in having fun. So it's it seems like a really great name for us that we just don't take ourselves too seriously. It's not to say that our profession isn't serious, but we really do like to have fun. And we're a group of passionate people who are quite creative. So, you know, having a name that exudes a bit more creativity and fun, I think really suits us. Speaking of Bob, what's your relationship with Rennie and how long have you been working with us for? Well, I'm going to really date myself here because I've been working with Bob Rennie for many years. Uh, I think that the first time I ever worked with him was about 2001. And I do remember entering the boardroom feeling extremely anxious and nervous and excited all at the same time to meet him. And it was just such a, a great 
first meeting because the first thing he did was he gave me a hug. And I think that really speaks a lot to Rennie marketing and um, just the feeling of, uh, you know, just you really feel embraced and you feel comfortable working with Rennie marketing in general. And so that first meeting was in 2001. The way we work together is we form part of the consultant team and we work really closely with your team. We're always usually brought in towards the beginning of the process when the envisioning is happening. And so we'll be in a room with the architects, the branding, um, the landscape architects, uh, of course, marketing and, and the client. And uh, we will be sitting together and Rennie does a fantastic introduction to the project itself. So we'll, we'll do a introduction of where we want to be positioned, what's the vision for it. And so that really puts the whole team on a really uh, a great starting point for us. So we start at that process and we start in the beginning, but we work all the way to the end pretty much when people start to move in and take occupancy of their spaces. There are some questions that come up during that period and we'll be involved in that project from the start to the finish. We're just, we're just really proud and honored that we're being included with the group of consultants that Rennie considers for the project. So it's, it's a fantastic relationship. Sounds like a nice, long-standing relationship, and we're so glad to have you here speaking with us. So, Ada, let's discuss why that some spaces resonate with consumers more than others. Sure. Uh, I think that uh, there is a real emotional connection that happens when you are making one of the biggest purchases of your life. And so it really is important that the space resonates with the purchaser. And how does that happen? I think that, you know, where we start is we really start with the data. And at the beginning of the process, we all work as a team together to evaluate who we're marketing the project for, your, who you are marketing the project for, and what the common shared values will be for those purchasers. And so when we establish these guidelines and we're all working on the same path, it is a very natural transition that people will start to resonate with spaces. So, you know, we really look at, there's core shared values that humans generally share. So, you know, the feeling of being safe and secure, whether it's a financial security or a physical security, that's one core value that is very strong amongst humans. And especially in times like COVID or um, political uncertainty, those become really strong and highlighted. And so, you know, we, we can really focus on those feelings, even just in very subtle ways. So, you know, feeling financially safe, that's, of course, a very important decision when you're purchasing. But just personally safe is equally as important. You know, think about the single woman that lives on her own and she has a dog. We want to make sure we're designing a shared environment for that person that she feels safe to go in the evenings and walk her dog without feeling threatened in a neighborhood. You know, it's, it's from that basic or even just a parent feeling safe that their child has a very safe environment. So that's one core value that humans, I think, share on many different levels. Um, freedom is another one. So freedom of choice is, is huge, of course. Uh, people are deciding what they want to purchase. That's their first freedom of choice. But they really want to feel that they have the freedom to personalize their space. And so we approach things in a way that is giving them the opportunity to express their own personalization and freedom 
and have control over their own destiny in, in a way. You know, you spend so much time in your own home that you underestimate what it feels like if you don't have that freedom to live your best life, if, you know, if we want to use that saying. But uh, when we design, we're really trying to facilitate that. So I think that's why some things resonate and where people can walk into an environment and they can picture themselves there, but they can also picture that they're not limited to what we've said, this is a suggested way of living. They can alter it in ways. And, you know, maybe that room isn't going to be a bedroom. It could be a family room. It could be an office. It could be many different things. And it's because we've designed it in a way that there is some flexibility. So how does this translate when you do a display suite? What we start with is we do personas. And it's, it's actually a lot of fun because you're creating a story. And it's, it's a lot about storytelling about a person. There's a lot of little joys and Easter eggs and things that you can see in displays when you've really given this some thought. So we do this all based on analytics, of course, of who, who the, what the data is telling us about who's going to live there. So if the data is telling us it's going to be a couple, they're going to be in their late 30s, um, they're married, they have probably have higher education, one may not. Uh, they've been raised in Vancouver by parents who immigrated to Vancouver. You know, we can really create this awesome story around it, give them names. We give their dogs names. We know what breed they are. We know what magazines they read, We what stores they shop at, what their favorite color is, um, where they've gone on vacation last, what hotels they aspire to go to. And when we create this vision, it's super fun and easy to execute it through doing the display suite because we are just creating a home for people. And it's a lot of fun because sometimes people can walk in and they really, it really resonates for them because they can identify with it and they can picture themselves there. It's like walking into a friend's house when the friend has just walked out of the room for a minute to grab something. They feel like they're in their home. And so that's actually one of the most fun parts and it's like the bow on the end of the design because we can execute it to the very end and that's that's just so much fun. Are there any common approaches in design that can relate to each other? There definitely is and so our our team has a consistent way that we start our process and we do this for every project that we work on uh, regardless of if it's multi-unit residential, if it's commercial, we do have a few of those community-based environments. And what we always start with is we evaluate the design challenge or sometimes it's called a problem, but it's not a problem in a negative sense. It's just, this is the, the crux of the matter that you're, you're trying to design around. And so what we do is we analyze the data that we've been given. And if there's any obstacles that would... Um, stop us from achieving the ultimate design. So we address those obstacles. So as an example, when we look at large scale development with say there's 500 homes, we do understand that there's a challenge that residents might feel unconnected to neighbors. So what we start doing is building solutions revolving around forming connections, either it's purposeful or spontaneous. And we form those connections about how the people would interact in spaces either in a lobby, uh, you know, as you're entering your, your building, perhaps even in the elevator, and different shared amenities. And everything really that we try to do is, is trying to improve the human experience. So 
if that's what is the important part, and I will tell you that most multi-unit residential projects that socialization with your neighbors is one of our most important things that we focus on, then that's what we'll do. The next thing that we do from there is we ideate. And so this is kind of that 500 foot approach. You're floating above the problem and you're really looking at how do we conceptualize to have solutions formed. And so what we do is we tie in conceptual themes with that. We approach different challenges by by thinking of themes and different ways to solve the problem. And then we take all that information and we put it together and we marry it together so that we then form a tangible solution. And a lot of this sounds very high level design thinking and it probably in our minds, designers, it probably makes a lot of sense, but we have to make sure that we're translating this in the best way possible for all the people involved. So, um, you know, the developers, um, the stakeholders, if there's any uh, users in the room, um, we're just trying to tell the story in a way that is really understandable. From all that, we then really show how we would apply that concept to the built environment. And this is pretty much the approach that we take on every project, on every level. On that note, let's talk about how strong ethics and responsibility is the foundation of BYU's design approach and philosophy. Yeah, it's um, professionalism and ethics has a huge resonance for us. And in fact, when we look at what our corporate core values are, um, professionalism is our number one core value. And so with that is ethics. Ethics falls under our professionalism. So we're always designing for the end user. Our core purpose is really to design for the person that's using the space, not for ourselves. And so by that, we're meeting the needs of our clients, but of course, the who's the developer in a lot of cases, but the solutions really revolve around the end user. And the whole team really is building the solution around the end user so that it's, it's creating the best environment, best solution, best community for the people that will be living in those areas and spaces. And without those people, our design is lost and it's really quite hollow. You know, one of the biggest things that we think about is the usefulness of environments for years to come. When we design a space, we're really thinking about how is this going to be used, not for today, not for tomorrow, but 10, 15 years from now. Because we do have a responsibility to design things in a way that people will feel that it's useful to them in that time. And we focus on timelessness, mostly. Um, Sure, there's the odd project we have where there's a few trends that we follow, but the majority of our work has that core timeless approach. Um, It's because what we design now has to look amazing and fresh years from now and function as well as it looks. And we really have that responsibility to create that environment that's lasting and a backdrop for living that can be tailored by the occupants. You have to remember a lot of what our solutions that you move into, that you're seeing the completed projects, we actually designed those six years prior in in a lot of instances. So we really have the responsibility to design in a way that is timeless. So when people move in, they feel very comfortable and that it suits what their lives are for that day. And why do we do it? We really have a humanistic approach. We want to make ourselves better people, and to do that, we feel making other people better and bringing people up around us. It just makes everything better. 
Uh, if we could influence the end users' lives, it would be that they would feel that their lives are better and that they're enhanced and that they can achieve their vision of a happy life. Um, happiness comes in many forms and our design solutions are based on different happiness's needs. Let's talk about our current situation with COVID. How has your design approach changed and how are you responding in your design? You know, COVID has really thrown everybody for a, a, a bit of a loop, but um, it's presented a lot of great opportunities where, you know, we can really start growing and improving situations that we didn't even think or know that it was something that we needed to do. Things that we're doing right now for a post-COVID world are, there are going to be lasting effects that happen in the psyche for people. I mean, I, I don't think we can imagine at this time, I can't imagine at this time, going back to um, how, how things were without doing some modifications. And so, you know, we really start to think about the adaptability of having people feel comfortable in many different ways. You know, it's a, it's kind of a funny conversation in a way that the introverts are kind of loving COVID in a way because they really, they keep their distance from people. And, uh, you know, I might be generalizing that a bit, but I'm speaking from my own experience. I'm a little bit of an introvert that, you know, we're really starting to design things in a way that you can have people feel secure by giving them the distance that they need in space, but you're doing it in a way that people still feel social. So it's a bit of a, a polar opposite when you think about it, where you want people to feel secure by distance, but you still want them to feel that they're connected to people. And so our design solutions really have to do with, when you space planning, thinking about pathways and different ways that people can flow through spaces and feel safe from distance or in other, any other regard from passing by each other. That, that kind of a distance or keeping paths of travel moving is that's something that we're going to adopt in general as we move forward. It's a space planning challenge for sure when we're talking about areas in Vancouver that space is a premium, but there are really clever and great ways that you can do that and space planning solutions. So let's go into insight two, informed to design, using data to design better. So Ada, you've been talking a lot about using data in your approach to how you design. And this approach really resonates with us. As you may know, Renny also strongly believes in using concrete data to inform us and help us support us in our decision-making process. How does data help you with your work and how you use it in your day-to-day? Yeah, I mean, we we love your data approach. Um, it's some of the strongest in the industry, that's for sure. And we really take that from that envisioning process. A lot of great data that comes out of that session helps feed our design. So for example, a project that has a high percentage of unit mix gearing towards one bedrooms, but is located at a higher price per square foot area, it's usually geared more towards couples or professional singles who are higher earners. But we might look at what those challenges would be for that purchaser. As an example, a couple might want separate zones for working or a bit of acoustical privacy from each other in the evenings if someone, one of them likes to watch TV and the other one goes to bed early. And so we really try to plan adjacencies for that. And just that's through design solutions and how things are positioned in rooms. So that's, that's really vital information for providing a, a, a design that would really suit the project. Another example that is a 
one that we seem to come across a lot is a project that is geared more towards families with two or three children, uh, might be in a suburban area. Um, they might be more of a walking distance to transit, but perhaps a drive to a grocery store. We do know that families need food and nourishment and that function of family is really important. So when we look at that, we'll create a larger kitchen that the family can gather at, they can really spend time together. Um, the fridge will definitely be a bigger fridge. Perhaps there's a gathering space around an island. You know, we really look at, at that kind of design to solve that problem, if you will. And all of that is reliant on data. So if we don't have the data that supports what, who is going to live there, we cannot come up with a viable solution. So what type of data is mainly used when you're looking for these type of informations to help you assess what type of design solutions you need? So the type of data we look at is usually trends. So we start with trends. We look at and analyze the data that's presented through numerical values. So if the values are moving downwards or upwards, we also look at what perhaps is happening in society as a result if there's an economic crash COVID is a good example, um, you know, and then we can start to analyze what those trends are and we rely on the analysis that comes from the intelligence team. Um, so, you know, of course in Vancouver, another big data pointer for us is culture. And so, you know, we have such a great cultural um, variety in Vancouver and greater Vancouver and beyond that it's just fantastic stats data that we look at and, uh, you know, to make sure that we're not alienating a culture, um, that we're enhancing and appreciating everyday needs of different cultures. So, you know, of course, we're all, we can't appeal to everyone um, or everything. We do, one of our biggest goals is to make sure we're not alienating anyone as a result of tailoring our design towards data or trends or different cultures. So some of the other data that we use when we look at for our design is age. Age is a big one. So, you know, thinking about the demographic mix that we will have for age groups, uh, because, you know, for example, I don't even know if we put phone lines in, in condos anymore because who has a landline anymore? However, if we were designing a project that was geared more towards the elderly, for sure we would have phone lines because... That's just a, a age-related need. Culture, of course, as I mentioned, is huge. Income is another part that plays into it because we do design for different income levels and what the value systems are for different income levels. And so it, it comes down to what is luxury, for example. So luxury has many meanings. Um, luxury for those who we assume have the luxury of money Luxury usually means space, um, solitude, um, those type of things. But luxury for someone who is um, of a lower income bracket, luxury could really just be those fantastic touch points of just a really uh, rejuvenating shower in the morning with fantastic showering equipment. Uh, luxury of being able to invite your friends over and being proud of your environment. So, you know, luxury is a term that is perhaps not really appreciated for what it is because I think there are small luxuries and everything. Ada, I love your input and insight regarding luxuries. Is there a, you know, a luxury across the board that's whether it's big or small that you can say that would resonate with people in all income levels? Well, I think 
the number one luxury that I can think of is access to fresh air. Really, it's it doesn't matter where you are in life um, or what income level you are in. Just being able to have access to fresh air, have access to um, being able to see outside, that is a, a luxury. So, you know, you can really think about it on different levels and what that translates to. So what your view is, of course, is different. But the fact that um, if you can have fresh air in your home is definitely a luxury that I think everyone can enjoy. Uh, another thing is is tactile luxuries. Everyone enjoys the tactile beauty of holding a really nicely designed handle, for example. So if you think about your plumbing fixtures, there are so many great options that are at many different levels of price point that it doesn't matter if it is an entry level or a high-end level, it has to feel good. And so, you know, that luxury of the touch of things, the touch of um, the flooring underfoot, for example, um, you know, being able to provide the luxury of something that is smooth to the hand. Those are luxuries that everyone can enjoy. It's just different types of luxuries that you prepare or present, but you definitely focus on those types of luxuries for people. As we're talking about data, good design is backed by data. Can you provide some examples of how you have used data to be able to implement better design? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think about a project where the data is statistically showing that you may have, for example, roommates. So um, you might be in a situation where it is a area that are a lot of singles. So it might be someone that purchases a place, but will be looking for a roommate. So some of the data that we use is based on that. We understand the human need of roommates is that they're not life partners, but they live individual lives, but they cohabitate essentially. So we use that data to start really thinking about auxiliary spaces within the home. Within the home can be a 450 square foot home or it can be a 2000 square foot home. But, you know, for example, with a 450 square foot home, ensuring that those roommates have areas of their own that they can allocate as their own. So especially right now when working from home, and I think this is going to be a trend that is going to last for years to come, is that they feel that they have an area that they can work and work independently without disrupting each other. The other thing that the data will drive in that situation is the need for more storage. Instead of in a bathroom having one big drawer where every, you know, the family's okay with sharing one drawer, you would need two drawers if they share that bathroom so that they have their own space for their own goods. It's the same with kitchen cabinetry. Um, you know, instead of just having one pantry space, having two, and so they can have their own space for their own food. So that's a great example of how data really drives our design. And we're using that example on a current project right now where we understand that roommates are probably going to be a lot of the occupants of the space. Another great example of data is, say, for example, a project on the North Shore. The data is telling us that most likely, statistically, the purchasers are going to be within a 15-kilometer radius of this project. And so they're looking to buy a new home. We look at the statistical hobbies, the statistical what type of occupations they have, if they take transit, if they bike to work, and we start to design around that. So making sure that any closet space has the ability to put muddy 
bike gear in, for example, or statistically showing 50% of the occupants will have dogs. Statistically, those dogs are larger dogs. Okay, so we now start planning for that. Um, you know, we'll plan a dog wash has to be hardy and perhaps it's next to a bike wash because, you know, that's, that's the same lifestyle of the people that will be within this project. How do the implications of certain local and global events such as COVID change the way people live? What data will you be seeking to inform your next design decisions? So uh, thinking about different global events. So, I mean, you know, COVID is the huge one and I don't think this is going to leave our minds for a very long time. It's really going to change our living situations immensely. You know, there are so many studies right now and so much data coming out of the workplace that um, employers are discovering how their profits are going to lie in the workplace. And so any data that comes from that is going to strongly, strongly influence the living situation. You can read it in the news anywhere about people buying all the way out, you know, Chilliwack, everything on fire, Langley on fire right now, because people envision that they're not going to be commuting as much. So it's not only the fact that they're moving away from these areas and they, they're going to be, in my opinion, in our, our studies is that they're, they're really using their home as hubs. As an example, doing focus work. So, you know, we've all experienced Zoom fatigue. I am so glad we're not doing this on a Zoom call, I can tell you, uh, that we're doing this face-to-face. But that focus work is exhausting work in its own. And that mentally, the studies are showing that you need to separate yourself at some point from that work. And so having a separate zone is really important to enrich your life. You know, you, you have to think about how your workspace and your home, how it's going to affect your way of living. The other thing is that you, we find that people will probably be forging stronger connections with their immediate neighbors. So you think about a condo development and the previous, um, you know, programming that we have been working on programming is what we, how we establish spaces. That's, that's what programming is in design speak is, um, you know, create boardrooms, create study pods, create those things. But we're now kind of turning that on its head a bit because we think that it's there is going to be this need for human connection and, a, and some kind of different way of being close to someone but far enough. And so really thinking about how that planning is affecting the common spaces. And I'm really excited to see how the data is going to be starting to swerve and change on its own that, you know, all the data that we're looking at the workplace and what's going to now start happening in the home market as a result of that for what people need, what people are asking for, when people are touring through projects, what questions they're asking now. Um, can I, what's my Wi-Fi here? Uh, you know, can I form another workspace? What's the acoustical properties of this room? You know, all of these questions, this is going to be born out of what's happening right now in the workplace as well. So that's really exciting for us. And it's a really invigorating time for designers because I think what you're going to see is a complete rebirth and creativity boost. And it's just, it's gonna be absolutely incredible what's gonna happen in the design world after, you know, when we're all in herd immunity that the approaches we're gonna take. Speaking of the future, this brings us to insight three, design for tomorrow, future-proofing our environments. I love the idea of designing for tomorrow. Can we talk about what future-proofing means? 
So future-proofing is a term that is used a lot in the design world. And really, I think the only way that you can really future-proof something is design it in a way that it's adaptable and it can be changed in the future. Uh, you know, it's really impossible to predict. No one has a crystal ball to see what inventions, what's going to happen. And so the only way that we really can design for the future is to be able to adapt and change and have flexible spaces that adapt to change. The other, the other way to future-proof, I think, is really taking things with a timeless approach. Uh, you know, thinking about solutions that don't date. So when you really look at what the design solution looks like, does it look like 2003? Does it look like 2024? What is an approach that is, is a very neutral backdrop for, for preparing for the future? That also just allows for life changes that are perhaps unanticipated. You know, thinking about if you're in a space and all of a sudden you're in a different life condition or something has happened to you, that you can really tailor your space to suit your future. And I think that's really more when you talk about the future, that's what we're talking about. It's not about putting USB ports. It's not about, you know, the different technologies in the walls. Future-proofing really is making sure that it adapts to your needs in your future. If I think of a few examples Again, talking again about the condition about designing for singles who perhaps might require roommates in the future. So, you know, thinking about the roommate situation, I think that's one that is one that's underestimated that uh, is a thing that we need to consider in the future is cohabitating with people that you need to suit two different lifestyles in one space. Another approach to future-proofing a space is when you look at, for example, when you're, when you're out thinking of purchasing a home, think about what the space can adapt to be. So, you know, if a space is really super fixed as this is the only place you can put a dining table, for example, perhaps that's not the best way to future-proof your home. You may want to adapt. You may want to change things around. And so future-proof it by making sure that your spaces are adaptable. That's, that's a great way to future-proof your home. So Ada, how can advisors and consumers recognize buildings and amenities that are future-proofed in design? I think by asking your real estate advisor to inquire about the amenities and what they're being planned for. So, you know, when you are purchasing into a pre-sale, for example, really look at what the spaces are outside of the suite. So, you know, if we show a multi-purpose room, that's actually a really good thing. So, you know, if, if we're not saying study room, boardroom, party room, that's actually um it could lock you into certain functions, but when we design, we're starting to really focus on multi-purpose rooms. So, you know, you can imagine looking at the furniture arrangement and the way the room is planned and the amenities within the room, for example, if there's a kitchenette and what have you, that you could have your friends over to watch the Oscars. You could have a bridal shower easily there. You could have a play date with your neighbor's kids. If you can start to imagine different things you can do in those spaces, that's a really great way to future-proof your purchase. Also, the other thing to look for is look at the lobby space. We are really focusing on designing for package delivery. I think we're really underestimating the amount of packages that are going to be in the future. And 
if your package room is bigger than your mail room, that's probably a good thing. You know, that's that's a great thing to look for if you're looking to future-proof your your home or your investment. The other thing is look for social zones for your neighbors. So going back to the feeling of security and safety and post-COVID world, you know, those those real happenstance touch points of socialization are going to be super crucial in the future for us to maintain our psychological well-being. And so being able to have those social society touch points where a lobby isn't just a lobby, a lobby might also be an area that you can sit and you can relax or, you know, um, think about someone sitting there and they can meet their neighbors. They can just have a seat or you can have a wine event. There's different ways you can do events in a lobby. A lobby isn't just an entry point. It can also be a gathering point. So I think those are great ways to um, recognize within buildings and amenities that are future-proofed. I love hearing all these insights from you, Ada. Are you able to give our listeners a little takeaway, what type of design ideas or approaches that they can learn from today's episode? Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's a few things that we could take away from today's episode. So number one, really evaluate what's important to you in your life. So is it in entertaining? Um, is it having your parents come and stay over with you? Is working from home important and something you want to keep doing? Do you like cooking, but do you hate the smell of cooking in your bedroom? If you really start thinking about what's important to you, erase what you have in your mind about the traditional norms of your dining room, your living room, you know, your separated kitchen. Think about those things, if that's important to you, and rearrange that in your life. And so you can really start making great buying decisions and or even in your own home, Think about it. Do you really need a dining table for six people? When was the last time you had six people over? If you had six people over, would you be able to adapt your your dining environment so you know, you're know you doing a stand buffet? Um, because that's a lot of real estate for something that you could be using for something that you get more enjoyment out of in life. So I think about something that I've done personally is I'm, I, it's not a side gig, I'm not making money from it, but I love to paint. And so I've carved out in my space, a space for me to paint. And it's a space that, you know, you would be like, oh, why are you using that as a painting space? But for me, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And it's something that's important to me. So I've taken the thing that is the norm. It's a secondary dining space. I don't need it. I don't use it. I barely use my own dining room. Um, so I, what's important to me is being able to do that. So, I mean, that's a very abstract way of thinking about it. But, you know, if you think about it in ways like what's important to you, if you take the example of the cooking smells. So maybe if you don't love cooking smells, but you love to cook, that perhaps is a case for a kitchen that has a separate area for cooking. Or, you know, um, maybe look at the design of your door going to your bedroom and uh, you know it could be as simple as just making sure that your door is a little more sealed going to your bedroom and you can close it and so you don't have the cooking smells if you love cooking so I mean there's little changes like that that you can do to your own home um, to future-proof it make it a happier space Um, the other thing I would say is avoid what society is telling you is the norm so if you don't like taking baths don't have a bath in your home just have a shower the one thing I will caution you is if you go to resell sometimes it's a tougher sell but you know think about how long you're going to be in your space if you're there for a period of time 
the value that you will get out of creating a shower that every day you will use and get enjoyment out of to renovate it to a tub is a small cost for the cost of enjoyment that you would get for 10 years out of your home. Another takeaway that I would say is multi-use spaces. So they're really quite great. Um, Really take a hard look at how you use those spaces. Eliminate spaces that you don't use or make them adaptable to times that you do. So I love to go back to the dining table example because there's not many instances now that you see people sitting around a dining table. A lot of times family time is around a, a kitchen island or, you know, um, those. there's different ways to spend time. But if a dining table is important to you, all the more power to you. But you could also make your dining room a workspace. But I would suggest if you do that, make sure you have a cabinet that you can tuck things away so that you're not constantly looking at your workspace. Acoustical privacy. So this is a huge one. Because we are living in more densified neighborhoods, um, your neighbor is very close to you. It is really important to be a good neighbor. Your happiness, I think, can contribute a lot to it. So if you like things louder, that's okay. But you just have to be a good neighbor and invest in some acoustic properties for your home. So invest in some drapery, some area rugs, just different things like that. And so those are some takeaways that I would say to improve your own home. That's amazing, Ada. I could listen to this forever. Thank you so much for sharing. And how can people find you if they are wanting to look into more information regarding yourself or BYU Design? Well, you can always go to our website, www.byudesign.com. There you'll find some fun things. We have a brochure that digs deeper into what we do, and we have some team profiles. So yeah, I invite you to come to our website. Thank you, Ada, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was nice speaking with you, and I learned a lot. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed today. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, all resources mentioned in the episode can be found on rennie.com.